Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Layla Latif. I'm Catherine McLaughlin. And I'm Katie Wright. On the show this week, Baba Kambari writes a love letter to Hitchcock in I Came By, and we'll be talking to the director himself before launching into our review. A 25-year-old plays a 31-year-old pretending to be a 9-year-old in Orphan First Kill. And on Film Club, it's the most decorated horror film of all time, The Silence of the Lambs. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Very excited to have you both on this week. Two first-timers, two people that are genre experts. Um, I guess we'll do the kind of, ask you to put it into your own words, uh, Catherine, do you want to go first? Who are you? Sure. I suppose it's actually two Catherines, but we'll go with Catherine and Katie. <laughs> um, so yeah, I work for the BFI Sight and Sound, The List magazine, and I'm features editor for Sci-Fi Now. I love cinema and sci-fi, but I'm also particularly drawn to cult and horror films and anything weird, dark or avant-garde. So, And I do have kind of a history in writing about real crime. All right. Well, yeah, all ticking all of the boxes of the things I love. Katie, what about you? Who are you? Uh, well, I am a freelance writer based in Chicago, Illinois. Um, I worked for the AV Club for about seven years, and uh, I'm a film uh, subject matter expert, I guess. Yeah, I also write a lot about horror films. Uh, I do, I do uh, you, know, you know, the daily week-to-week grind of uh, reviews and film criticism, but, you know, when it comes to writing essays, uh, I suppose my, um, my area of specialty is uh, B-movies, exploitation films, uh, horror films, anything, anything genre-based, anything that is... Um, Maybe not traditionally appreciated by critics, except for perhaps the French. <laughs> uh, we love that kind of reimagining the canon and kind of you know, you know, appreciating things that didn't get their due when they were out. But I mean, I'm wondering about the current state of horror because I would say last year was not a very good year for horror. Perhaps that's a, you know, there were a few great things that came out, but. As a big genre fan, I, I I didn't have many highlights. What do you guys think 2022 is shaping up to be? Um, I don't know about in America, Katie, but in the UK, January is usually kind of a dumping ground for the horror that didn't mm-hmm. make it to the October slash Halloween. Is that the same in the US? Yeah, although in the US, for some reason, 
October is not a big month for new horror releases, which is very odd. Yeah, it's um January, and the good stuff comes out in March and April oh, okay. in the US. Mm-hmm. Well, for, I mean, this year in 2022, probably because of pandemic and lockdown conditions, we actually got uh, the new Scream film in January, which mm-hmm. I think is a good place to start when we're looking at mainstream horror and what's being released in theatres, because it is having that conversation that people are having on social media about popular culture and how horror is changing. So mm-hmm. I think there's a a line to draw between what slashes are doing and maybe bodies, 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 which is coming out soon in that they both tie social media together with their Mm -hmm. horror tropes. Um, And there's a lot of personal horror as well that's come out. I particularly liked We're All Going to the World's Fair, which Mm -hmm. I'm not, I didn't grow up an internet person. I wasn't into creepypasta or anything like that, but I feel that film is so atmospheric and beautifully full of dread and things like that. So those, those have been kind of a highlight. Yeah. Yeah. We're all going to the world's fair was definitely the year's highlight for me so far. Um, That director, it was her first feature film and she's uh, currently shooting another one, uh, which is, which is very exciting. Um, yeah, that one came up as sort of a uh, underground selection at Sundance last year, and we were one of the first publications to review it. So that one has kind of a special place in my heart. I lo- I am very excited to see more horror films from people who did grow up very mm. much online and kind of seeing that uh, experience uh, refracted, you know, kind of the disassociation of online is a rich vein for horror films and discussion. Um, I, to your other point, I do think slashers are having a bit of a comeback because Mm -hmm. there was also X. I don't know if X has come out there yet, but that came out here back in March. And that's definitely kind of looking at a slasher revival. And I think that what we're seeing is, you know, the the so-called elevated horror was very popular uh, in the late 2010s. And I think, you know, the pendulum just swings back and forth. And I think that at this moment, we're swinging back towards more, you know, quote unquote, like mindless fun. But I think the newer stuff that's coming out isn't quite so mindless, which is sort of a new and refreshing development. Yeah, I think also with X, uh, T. West is a director, I think, who is excellent. And he delivered one of my favorite moments of cinema this year when uh, he basically literally skewers the sensitive male director's gaze um, due to his fear of the sexuality of an elderly woman. And I just, I jump for joy at that point, but I'm not sure if mm-hmm. everyone else kind of was on the same page as me. Yeah. Uh, well, my favorite moment in that film was when they had the the scene where there's, uh, you know, blood splashed on the headlights of the van and don't kill, or excuse me, don't fear the reapers playing yeah. in the background. <laughs> <laughs> because the, the 70s is my favorite decades for film generally. And mm. so just the, the pure 70s of that moment uh, really, really worked for me. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was beautifully done, really beautifully done. And obviously mm-hmm. they shot the prequel at the same time, didn't mm-hmm. they? And But in the UK, we didn't get the uh, post credit sequence, actually. Oh, really? In Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. Very strange. Hmm. That is upsetting news. I also recently found out that now on Disney Plus, you don't get the uh, Monsters, Inc. 
put that thing back where you found it also helped me post-credit sequence and that was also very upsetting news <laughs> but yeah I'm, I'm 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 down i'm watching pearl in about two weeks and i am very mm-hmm. excited for it i love kind of the idea of mia goth as this kind of millennial scream queen she's just <laughs> such a she's so compelling as a final girl and as a as a i guess as a slasher i don't know what you call her as a villain um, I think also there's something interesting happening with folk horror. So we had mm. um, Alex Garland's Men, and in did you have the Feast, which is a Welsh horror, folk horror? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw the Feast. Yeah. So with Men, I feel like it's going back to British folk roots. With did you ever see Robin Redbreast? Uh, which was a play for the t- play for today, and that dealt with women's rights, and this obviously deals with misogyny in a very mm-hmm. uh, in what should I say graphic? visceral way? Yeah, yeah. Visceral. <laughs> <laughs> visceral. That's the perfect yeah. word. <laughs> oh, yeah. There was a little bit of um, what um, Katie's former colleague A.A. Dowd termed metaphora overload for me with men. <laughs> like, yeah, if there, I, it, it feels that maybe kind of that really heavy-handed metaphor of something like men. And also with Scream, the sort of remake that just has the name of the original film. But maybe something has ended. <laughs> something new <laughs> is coming out. I'm just interested of what you all think about the folk horror revival, you know, in the UK, because it was really a Canadian, Kayla Janice, in her documentary, uh, Woodlands Dark and Days by Witch, that kind of launched that, um, you know, that revival. And she's radically expanding the boundaries of what's considered folk horror. And I'd be curious, mm-hmm. you know, because the classic definition of folk horror is very British. I'd be curious what you all think about that. I'm very excited for it. I love The Wicker Man. It's one of my all-time favourites. So mm-hmm. I'm excited to for filmmakers to delve into that in new ways as well. Yeah, very much so. Um, yeah, I mean, I always love it when things kind of draw from a, a kind of a, a strong tradition. It's something I really liked in uh, Nanny earlier in the year, the way that they kind of got that kind of West African mythology into kind of, a, I suppose, a different type of folk horror from a different area of the world. But it, it, mm. it's so rich and beautiful when it's done right mm-hmm. but um we should move on to what is not technically a horror i suppose it's a thriller let's move on to i came by toby and jay are a pair of rebellious young graffiti artists who target the homes of london's elite when toby breaks into the home of progressive high court judge sir hector blake he discovers a horrifying secret uh so, Katie, are you a fan of Babak Anvari? You know, he did Under the Shadow, he did Wounds, and uh, did this live up to your expectations of his previous work? Well, this one, I loved Under the Shadow. I thought that was a great film. Wounds was confusing to me. I was a little confused about how we landed there. Uh, this one I did enjoy better than Wounds, but perhaps not as much as Under the Shadow. Uh, he makes a lot... I would... Be curious to find out. He makes a lot of um, stylistic decisions in the way he directs, the way he directs actors and the way that he lights actors and things like that that seem very rooted in the horror space to me. But then he applies it to films like this that are more traditionally um, thrillers. And uh, I I find it 
fascinating because it's it can be a bit off-putting in a in a non-horror context um for example uh just just he directs actors in this really heightened way you know like um that yeah it's singular i would say i came into this not knowing anything at all about it and i was kind of right shocked by how incredibly unpleasant it was at time because it does have a little bit of a you know this is probably going to be like a mystery and then most of the people will be okay and it really has a very nasty heart at its core Mm -hmm. did that work that work for you Oh, yes, that was one of my favorite things about it. Um, The thing that I thought was the most interesting about it was um, the way that it plays, you know, these really, really dark serial killer elements, mostly through suggestion. Uh, You know, the really uh, graphic stuff of, you know, um, can I say this, like cutting up bodies and things like that are, are off screen, which I thought was an interesting way to play it that I thought was was pretty cool. Um, I thought at first this was going to be a home invasion thriller. I thought it was going to be a riff on Don't Breathe. And I was sat- I was very satisfied with the way it took a turn away from that midway through. So, you know, Catherine, Hugh Bonneville is not normally who we think about when we think of a terrifying uh, a figure. I mean, particularly in England with Downton Abbey, he's so kind of cozy. Um, did he work for you as a villain? I mean, we're not going to go into spoiler territory, but safe to say he's a very bad man. Yes, from the trailer, from the opening shot, you you can tell he's an, an intimidating presence. Uh, yes, so I think I'd like to chat about how the film deals with institutions and how it's insightful on how sycophantic politicians or people in power have a brazen disregard for human life and I think it's a good reflection of maybe where the texture of the current time um so yeah it's insightful and sadly evergreen on how power is structured and who has it and the way institutions and systems swallow up disenfranchised and it happens generation after generation so it's a film that points to the way bodies pile up when those in power and the institutions produce institutions that produce these people aren't held to account. So the strongest point of the film for me was Hugh Bonningville, this presence. He's a, he's, a, he's a judge, and obviously he played the lovely father in Paddington, so it's inspired that he takes this role with such relish. I really enjoyed his performance. I enjoyed the costume choices. Menacing polo necks really tickled me, as did the scene where he's shown giggling to Rick and Morty. And I think Anvari is so well-versed in film and the way he combines small details on popular culture and politics with a dark sense of humour is where the film was strongest for me. It did really make me laugh. And also his little nods to British culture. So a Bonneville's judge is a celebrated student of a college that sounds remarkably like he's an old Etonian, though they never mention that college, of course. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's there's so much about the hypocrisy of this man. There are some points where he's kind of talking about like how much he cares about immigrants and trans rights and mm. stuff like that. Um, do you think that that kind of, that is the new face of uh, what we have to worry about nowadays. Like, actually, it's the people that say all the right things that can be the most dangerous. Yeah, this reminds me of, I interviewed uh, the director Mary Heron about American Psycho. And we were discussing, you know, how the film would play differently if 
she had made it now. And she said the same thing about Patrick Bateman, that character, that if the film had been made in 2020, that Patrick Bateman would be like Hugh Bonneville's character in this film and say all the right things while doing, um, you know, unspeakable things in the background with impunity. (laughs) But yeah, and especially when we live in an era where you're supposed to be a brand, a lot of uh, celebrity figures are a brand and they play lip service and maybe necessarily not with a evil intent on their mind, but they don't always necessarily know what they're talking about or if they actually stand for those things that they're saying. Yeah, it's, it's um, I mean, it, it it is one that kind of, I, I really don't want to spoil it all because it is, it was so nice um, being surprised. But suffice to say, there's a lot of kind of little Hitchcock references in here. We've got um, what, Babak refers to as a double psycho. Did you kind of appreciate it as like a Hitchcock love letter in a way? I think partly that's what drew some of the suspense away for me because I knew that he was doing that and so I was trying to second guess things and I maybe guessed what was going to happen. Okay, do it about you. Not knowing anything, that must have been freeing. (laughs) <laughs> yes, I came into this completely blind as well. And um, I, I, I love the double psycho. The first psycho was was my favorite. <laughs> I like the first psycho the best. I mean, if, if there was something that I kind of perhaps missed a little bit in this is from Under the Shadow, like there was such an incredible crisp aesthetic with the black and white. And it was so gorgeously shot. This, to me, as much as I did really like it, felt very Friday night on the sofa, TV, having the great time of your life. But I wonder, do you think that perhaps what was missing was a little bit of how cinematic it could have been? Yeah, I think maybe he tried to fit in too many threads and they didn't always satisfactorily come together. And with Under the Shadow and Wounds also, those films are so atmospheric and really draw you into those worlds. And I think... This one just didn't have that same hold for me. And maybe it's to do with, I found the the villain fa- absolutely fascinating and I found that performance great, but maybe not so much with the heroes. As yeah. much as I'm going to say on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will disagree with you that Wounds was atmospheric. I like this a lot more than Wounds, I must say. I mean, Wounds for me is a bold miss and I'd rather filmmakers kind of went for it and maybe it doesn't quite work but you know they tried something exciting fully agree fully agree I found it yeah okay but I did find it a really eviscerating kind of breakup movie uh yeah I found that effective (laughs) uh well with this one there were some things that uh, for example I mean this is right up top in the film so maybe we can talk about this um, the main characters are members of this graffiti crew and mm. um, they're notorious for breaking into the homes of the wealthy and tagging the inside of the home that to me was a little underwhelming as political activism <laughs> I didn't quite get what the I mean I suppose it's to make them feel unsafe and destabilize them but you know there's a there's a scene early on where one of the main characters is listening to a youtube video and they're talking about meaningful activism and they mention their project as meaningful activism and i was like mm, soft disagree i'm not sure that this is you know, <laughs> the most hard-hitting action that you could take 
Yeah, I found it very refreshing when um, Percival acts Scott's character, Jay, is kind of does say what I was thinking about. Like, this is a bit pointless. (laughs) 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 Yeah. And I felt reassured because it's like, well, the film knows. (laughs) Right. Yes. But in terms of being invested in the characters and, you know, kind of their personalities and mission, that, um, you know, it destabilized it a bit for me because I didn't quite get what the, I didn't, I wasn't impressed by what they were doing, I guess, and so I wasn't horribly invested in it either. Yeah, the, t- the tagline's quite underwhelming as well. I came by. Um, yeah, the tag was, it didn't, that didn't do it for me either. So I guess what they're doing is definitely underwhelming in the bigger picture and I think with the way the George Mackay who plays one of the graffiti artists is introduced he's here's this terribly angry young man and Anvari does kind of progress the story with his other characters in how people mature and grow up and aren't just these angry people you have responsibilities in life and you're direction changes so that was an interesting way that I thought the film went but again I I think I wanted it to be nastier <laughs> what I know I'm horrible there is... well just because when A Clockwork Orange uh, the music from that the Henry Purcell's music for the funeral of Queen Mary starts playing I was expecting super brutal things but maybe that's just me well, oh, there is a scene about two thirds of the way into this where I like, I think I actually like, perhaps as a mother, but it, I, I grasped my heart. I was like, so like, God, Lord, no. <laughs> well, I but mean, not enough for you. Apparently not. I see where Catherine is coming from, though, because, like I was saying before, there's a uh, he does the 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 more graphic parts of it very tastefully, which is, which mm. is again a choice, you know. But I don't mind a little bit of graphic violence either. So. Yeah, <laughs> but that's all to do with yeah. expectation. Yeah, my mm. expectation. Yeah, and I think for, if you're well, it's showing at the cinema and it'll be on Netflix. So if you're watching at home, I think, yeah, it's a it's a decent one to kind of scare you, even though it's a thriller. There's something about Netflix movies where they're never, I mean, you know, films like Power of the Dog or Roma accepted, I suppose, but your average Netflix potboiler is always a little bit underwhelming in terms of its cinematic qualities. Yeah, I don't feel like anybody comes to Netflix and does their most exciting work. Mm. Um, but having said that, again, I did like this movie. And uh, we should get some scores on this so we can move on to the other two very different films, even <laughs> though we're kind of staying in the same genre. Um, Catherine, do you want to go first? Yeah, in Anticipation, sure. enjoyment, and in retrospect. So out of five for each. Uh, so anticipation for me was a four because I love Babak Anvari's work. I think he's very politically minded director and he's great at atmosphere and dread. Enjoyment for me was a three and in retrospect three because it's saying a lot of really interesting stuff that reflects the times and I think will speak to a lot of people. Well, for me, expectation was honestly a two because I was not a fan of wounds. Um <laughs> 
the my enjoyment i would say was a three uh i did quite enjoy the watching of it and in retrospect maybe almost a three and a half because you know he's doing a lot of very interesting things i don't think they always work but he's throwing a whole lot he's he is very good at the tension and uh the suspense building and those types of sequences but when you pull back from that and look at the film as a whole he does a lot of stuff and it doesn't all work but like you were saying uh Leah uh, I I appreciate a big swing so for me probably um falls across the board actually I think I have a very fortunate selective memory when it comes to filmmakers who have made a film I really liked and if there's a slightly disappointing follow-up I just kind of put it to the recesses of my mind and just remember the fabulous sequences in Under the Shadow. Yeah, for an enjoyment, I, I really was quite impressed by how nasty it got. Um, um, yeah, I, some of the kind of aesthetics that like I loved about Under the Shadow, I was kind of sad to see that wasn't there. But I, I loved the character of the house. I loved all of the kind of daddy issues of it all. And yeah, for in retrospect too. So... You know, I'm excited to see what he does next. I think um, I think there's this ability that he's had to kind of actually really change a lot between his films and reinvent the sort of movie maker that he is. is um, It's exciting. Uh, so I came by as in select cinemas from the 19th of August and on Netflix from the 31st. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, Babak. I'm sure you don't remember me because we were cameras off last time, but I did the um, sight and sound interview for you. Of course I remember you. Yeah, great to talk to you again. (laughs) It's really lovely to talk to you too. Uh, yeah, no, I, you know, you've been having a lot of these conversations for a while now. I think I, of all the stuff I've done and you're still here talking. <laughs> I, I know, but, it, you know, it's fun. I'm happy as long as, like, everyone else around me aren't bored because they can, they've been <laughs> listening to the same thing over and over and over. Um, so I guess we'll start properly with, um, you know, you've spoken about how the idea for I Came By existed for, like, many years mm-hmm. from film school. Um, in all the different kind of ways that you thought about it, what was like the core things in the story that didn't change? 
uh, the core thing that didn't change. Uh, it was always about a young artist of some sort uh, against the man or the system and, and the man who is part of the system. And then, uh, so that never changed. It's the thing that changed was um, what type, you know, originally it was meant to be, a, it was a photographer, my original idea. Uh, but uh, after revisiting it, I realized that um, graffiti or, uh, art makes more sense because it's more subversive. And the idea that like, even within their, uh, within the graffiti world, they're going extreme by like breaking into people's like the elite's home and like tagging the wall. I came by like I'm watching you. Um, uh, I thought that was like interesting. So so I changed that, and then because you know, also age changed it a bit because you know the original idea was far more earnest and simpler. And, you know, I was in my early 20s when I came up with it. But as I grew older, I realized that the world is more complex than I used to look at as, as in my early 20s. And so, so you know, managed to, like, layer it a bit more. And, you know, uh, so, yeah. Uh, but the core of it is, is the same. Yeah. Um, and, you know, your previous two films are in Iran and in America. For you, did this story necessarily have to be in London? One thousand percent. I mean, it was like from the moment I came up with it, I was like, this is such a London movie. Um, and, you know, I wanted to do a neo-noir in London, which um, it, you know, these days it rarely gets made here. And, but London is a great city for it. Uh, and I also wanted to make sure that it's not a postcard version of London. You know, you're on the ground looking at London with the characters, you know, like a normal Londoner who lives here. Um, mm. so the setting was really important, but the themes of it, the key thing was that even though it's like, uh, very British, I wanted to make sure that it's also at the same time universal, you know, uh, there's a lot of like disillusionment when it comes to like power structure every, everywhere in the world now these days. So, um, so that was really key for me that like, um, it's both London, but yet, hopefully universal and anywhere anyone anywhere around the world can like relate to it and and enjoy it yeah i suppose that's kind of baked into the release in many ways because of course this um, this will come out in time for the cinematic release and you know we always want people to go and see stuff at the cinemas but like most people are going to watch it around the world on netflix exactly do do you keep that in mind that it then had to have something that had global appeal and also something that would work you know on a tv on a sofa not just on like a big screen in a cinema I think I always like, keep that in mind. Uh, I mean, I'm obviously as a as a film nerd, love going to cinema, watch it on a bit on a bit, watch a film on a big screen with loads of people. Uh, but at the same time, I you know I watch a lot of films on my television, and I you know and and a lot that's a, that's the way a lot of people consume. Uh, well, I hate using that word, watch uh, <laughs> a lot of uh, great films and TV. Um, but I, I think uh, also growing up in Iran, which is this is something I was like talking to a friend of mine. Um, you know, during the eighties, uh, it was like you know we had to get our hands on boot like the tapes, like Betamax tapes. Then it ended up being v- like in the nineties was more VHS. So that was like my initiation in the film world, just like watching these like bootleg videos and like on 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 telly. So. Um, so, yeah, so basically that's kind of ingrained within me, like ma- making sure every story that I tell, it can be enjoyed both ways. But did this film, 
I really also in the UK, it's a fun one to watch in a dark theater with loads of audience around, as well as watching it at home. But like, I think it has like some some jump moments and terrifying moments, which could be fun, <laughs> like many yeah. films. Yeah, yeah. Um, like in terms of like those scares and like the suspense you did, you've talked about like Hitchcock being a big influence on this. Um, you know, without get, getting away any spoilers, there's, you know, the nod to Psycho that we referenced. But um, what other Hitchcockian elements did you want to bring on board? Because I guess the classic London Hitchcock is Frenzy. Was that an inspiration? It was, but I think most, my, my favorite Hitchcock films uh, are uh, Rear Window and Psycho. Um, <laughs> and, and then Vertigo is close, but I think those two films are my favorite. And, uh, and the idea of like ordinary person suddenly uh, through certain weird decisions finding themselves in an extraordinary situation that's very Hitchcock as well and uh, so and I love that you know and um, uh, so I, I think that I, I overall I think I was thinking about like how I can you know we had this conversation before about like how Hitchcock is from Britain but um, you rarely Get, you know, see these films happening over here. Uh, uh, so I was like, I want to bring back those sensibilities, uh, you know, and I make a make a London-based Hitchcockian new noir thriller. Uh, so yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it's interesting because when I was watching it, uh, there's part of me that thought like, oh god, this like suspicion of authority and suspicion of the police is kind yeah. of like that feels pretty present. And then I'm just like, no, that's classic Hitchcock, Hitchcock. isn't it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, didn't he famously have a fear of police? And like, uh, uh, so yeah, that is classic uh, Hitchcock, and like, um, not trusting the, the 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 ruling establishment, and like, everyone have their own motives, uh, and so yeah. But you know, besides Hitchcock, there were like a lot of other great films that also influenced it, like a lot of brilliant 90s films of course growing up like silence of the lambs and like uh a lot of fincher films like seven and and then uh then more recently like a lot of south korean films i love how they think out of the box and uh, you know mother for instance was as an inspiration by bong joon who um the uh kiyoshi kurosawa's creepy uh, but then also like Hollywood sort of neo noirs, which like Nightcrawler and The Prisoners, and I was like, well, I want to do this, but set in the UK, uh, which uh, you know uh, that that was like one of the exciting things about doing this film. Yeah, I suppose it's that classic thing with Silence of the Lambs in that like Anthony Hopkins is not like a particularly intimidating figure and like it's yeah. kind of like and Hugh Bonville is not kind of bone chilling when you kind of you know as an image in the culture like how how are you confident that you were going to be able to make Hugh Bonville really scary because the film doesn't work unless people are genuinely chilled by him oh and to be fair he's so lovely in in real life so but part of me I don't know knew first of all it always starts with excitement I had I wanted him to play this role because I just part of me felt like he could you know he would be brilliant at it and I think I was right and uh and when I talked to him the fact that he was excited to do it and wanted to do something different you know because everyone knows him from his family movies and Downton and and his comedy 
And uh, he was, uh, you know, the day he got on, uh, the day he he sort of um, came on board, he sent me this lovely message saying, I'm really excited by uh, creating this monster with you. Uh, so <laughs> the fact that he was up for it, and I keep saying that, like, um, actors uh, with comedy background also are so versatile and have this amazing ability, in my uh, opinion, that they can uh, to to tap into the dark side. And yeah. so, you know, for some reason, I had, like, only confidence that... And I thought, like, it would be exciting for the audience to see him doing something totally different that he hasn't done before. Um, yeah. Well, um, there is a moment where he... Um just says something incredibly quietly that has kind of really stayed with me all of this time. Um, I'm so pleased. Yeah, it's the small things, isn't it, that kind of stay. It's never the kind of big slashy bits. But to be fair, that's, again, like just getting those incredibly intense moments only through performance. I mean, hats Mm. off to Hugh. Like there were moments, I mean, when I was writing the script with Namsi, there were moments we knew that, oh, this is like going to be a tense moment and blah, blah, blah. But seeing Hugh delivering it or like even doing it in his own way, like it shocked the crew and even me at points. And I was like, oh, my God, like that. That's a great choice. Uh, So, uh, yeah, like I that's classic example. Some of those moments I was like, you know, he's he's making us jump just through performance. No sound, no nothing. (laughs) It's like, you know, yeah. Or making us really uh, get creeped out. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the character of Ahmed, who, mm-hmm. you know, not only is he kind of under threat of like real violence, but he's sort of been failed by so many people, by his family, by the immigration system, by the police and everything like that. What did that character kind of mean to you? Well, being Iranian, obviously, and and knowing and uh, knowing the plight of like immigrants and refugees, that that really uh important the funny thing our very sharp script supervisor came to me and it was like oh my god and she's she's english i don't know how she found that she was like omid means hope in farsi did you choose that on purpose i was like yes oh my god i can't believe (laughs) how did you find out uh and and it was even like with the choice of name it was like this guy comes here with a hope of uh sort of like living his life and then find himself in a in a you know kind of a pickle that was um that and the, the you know the I, the whole idea the central theme of the film is how institutions fail us whether it's like big institutions uh, like police force or government uh or smaller institutions like our family and friendship groups and if you think about it all the characters so uh, at some point are getting failed either by big institutions or smaller institutions, and I think Omi was like sad, the the combination of all of that because he's been failed by the system and his family, and you know so so um, so it was like almost like the 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 focal point <laughs> if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, I also wanted to return to the house, the poor house that uh, Omi finds himself in. Um, mm-hmm. That has such a, a character. Like, what were what were the things you were looking at when you were hunting for the house that, like, so much of the action take place takes place in? Uh, it's 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 interesting. I think that um, I had I had a, obviously an idea of the house in my head when I was writing it, 
but uh, I've learned from, you know, since Under the Shadow that, like, you have one idea, but you need to be flexible because sometimes you find a location that's actually better than the one that you had in mind. And uh, and I think this, the, the house we found ended up being perfect because of the, the long, narrow hallway when you enter. And we, com- we start comparing it to, like, a, uh, like a monster, like, um, you know, like... Uh, Hades' three-headed dog. I forgot the, na- the the Greek name of it, but like it's almost the house's like Hector's version of it. Is and like you enter it, and it's like has bits like the door is the mouth, and then the 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 hallway is like the throat, and obviously you get deeper, go into the basement, and um, so I I think we we managed to find the perfect house, and from the outside, lovely house, but from the outside, it also had like this weird. Uh, Amityville sort of vibe to it, uh, and uh, so, um, so yeah, that was like pure luck. We 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 saw a number of houses, um, and this was like the the third or fourth one um, that we you know like we nearly got the 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 other t- three, but then it fell apart. So it was always a reset. But then I think it was a blessing in disguise. Yeah, and it, it's got that real kind of. Um nothing to see here in this house like yeah. you can believe that people would be pressed up against the windows and you know people would walk by it's it's exactly that and you know it's a little bit um sort of like lynchian in that sense like blue velvet like i wanted that like this leafy beautiful uh neighborhood rich neighborhood uh uh, has secrets, <laughs> you know, and like you literally things are happening inside behind closed door that you have no idea of. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I think I'll end with um, so you know, this is your third feature. We've got Under the Shadow, Wounds, and now this. And this, you know, you could kind of, I suppose they kind of fall under a genre category, mm-hmm. but they're such different films, mm-hmm. different continents and tones and aesthetics. Like, do you see a thread that kind of connects them in terms of the types of films that you make? It's a very interesting question. I mean, I love to show variety. I mean, I know the first two films were more horror. This one is more like a thriller, if you can categorize it. But I think, first and foremost, I think for me, it's like using something grounded, like the groundedness of like character relationships and character dynamics, uh, but then balance it with genre elements, uh, which that's one thing that I always wanted, love to do, like with Under the Shadow and this one, you know, like putting kind of real people in really extraordinary situations. That's like, that's something that really excites me um, uh, for some reason. I guess it's a sadist side of me as a filmmaker was like how about like putting ordinary seemingly ordinary people in very crazy situations let's see how they're going to behave (laughs) and it's the masochist inside me that loves to watch (laughs) exactly (laughs) it's a fun bit thank you so much next up orphan first kill This prequel to 2009's Orphan has Esther orchestrate an escape from an Estonian psychiatric facility. She travels to America by impersonating the missing daughter of a wealthy family. Catherine. Hello. I've I've got to imagine, is watching as much genre as you do, 
there's there's a wild variety in quality to like <laughs> any given week. So yes, but I do I do really enjoy the trashy horror, and I feel this fits in that mould. So the original orphan film, directed by Juanme Colette Serra, I think he's a really great director of building tension. So he did The Shallows as well. And so the original film starts, it's very much more serious minded. So it's genuinely suspenseful and upsetting. And the final twist comes so completely out of the blue that it was a film that really stuck with me. Um, So yeah, it's a prequel. And we have Isabel Furman playing the same character and she's nine mm-hmm. years old in this one. So that is off-putting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know you know this going in, so you're prepared for it. And you either go with it I and enjoy it. I was not prepared. It. You were not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, like the... <laughs> So the original film, the, most of the way through it, you're, you're with Vera Farmiga's grieving mother for a, a daughter she lost in childbirth, and it's touching, and it's a portrait of marital strife. In this one, you're just watching the origin story of uh, Esther, where she came from, and it doesn't really care that much about why she's lost her humanity. It's more interested in the cat and mouse games and the brutality of the kills and things like that so yeah I remember seeing the trailer for William Brent Bell's The Boy and thinking I can't wait Mm -hmm. to watch this enjoyable trash with my friends but I found it very boring I think it made me laugh once but with Orphan First Kill I genuinely think he has an ace up his sleeve simply from the casting of Isabel Furman reprising her original role she's clearly having so much fun playing Esther again and this time the audience going go in knowing full well what game she's playing. So there's room to push it even further into absurdity, which I think the film does extremely well. But we can't give much away as to how it does that because it's a different thing that happens this time. Yeah, I don't have terribly fond memories of Orphan, the first one. Like, I didn't really remember much about it aside from the moment where she's revealed to be a fully grown woman. Mm -hmm. Uh, Katie, did you like Orphan as an original? And did this kind of live up to your B-movie love? Well, um, yeah, I mostly remember the original Orphan for the twist. I don't remember a whole lot about it otherwise, to be honest. Um, this one, I think Isabel Furman is actually a, a good, she's a good actress. Um, did it, there was a film called The Novice that she was in last year that was, uh, that I, I thought she was quite good in that film. And she's one of the better actors in this film as well. And, uh, but I, I think that her casting gives the film sort of a baseline level of camp that the mm. rest of the film never really, like, it tries to live up to it but doesn't quite get there. This reminded me of an elevated version of, I don't know if you have these, Lifetime Thrillers. Um, it's a big, mm. yeah, it was, a, this reminded me of an elevated Lifetime Thriller. It had a lot of the same kind of beats. Um, you know, like you have the competition between, uh, a lot of Lifetime Thrillers you know, uh, if the listeners aren't familiar, they're made for TV movies. I have a theory, a thesis that they are the drive-in films of our era. Um, but they are, um, mostly, uh, aimed at middle-aged women. 
and there and there's channels that play them 24/7 and they're these trashy thrillers aimed at middle-aged women and a lot of them hinge on similar dynamics with Orphan where you have this this outsider who comes into the family and threatens, you know, the sanctity of the family with her scheming and this film did some clever things with playing with that dynamic where you have Esther and then her uh the uh, long lost mother uh, played by Julia Stiles. And the, the competition there uh, reminded me of, you know, a big screen version of that type of film. And a lot in those films often draw from real life and true crimes. And uh, just to be blunt, straight up rip off <laughs> details from real life. And uh, this film did that as well. So yeah, it, I enjoyed it on that level, but I didn't think it ever really rose that much farther above, say a good, you know, lifetime wine and popcorn on the couch type of movie. I, I do like a good lifetime. I used to watch them back in the day. There's one with Tori Spelling called Mummy May I Dance with Danger or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I watched it about. Yeah, That's there's it. a time and a place for them. Um, but obviously, with this, we have a fully grown woman pretending to be basically in the role of a child. It's as much as kind of B-movie kind of jankiness can be very endearing. Did did it work for you at all? Did you ever buy her as a child? No. No, no, no. No. Uh, The apple boxes and the camera angles and, you know, the child doubles and all the little tricks that uh, the director pulled out to make her look, you know, shorter in stature, you know, those, those were effective enough, but she looked, she looked like a teenager in the face to me. I never, every time they cut to her face, I'd be like, Oh, right. This is a grown woman. So that Mm. continually, (laughs) that continually took me out of the story, which like I said, kind of established uh, a baseline level of camp for the whole thing for me. Did anyone rewatch Orphan? I I, re- I watched the prequel and then I watched rewatched Orphan. Did anyone else do it in that way? I just watched the YouTube video of the bit where she takes off her makeup <laughs> and is revealed to be an older woman. I was like, that's that's the bit, isn't it? I mean, yes. Um, obviously, there are a few callbacks to her art, her uh, neon glowing art and things like that i i probably went too much into the <laughs> into the orphan backstory uh but i just i genuinely enjoyed isabel famine's performance she really knows how to shoot a dirty look i enjoy that and then when she gets back into the beret and her her hair tied up and things in the in the prequel it's a massive reveal and it's it's very entertaining i think they have a lot of fun with those bits. And I feel like mostly they were in on the joke, but I th- I think you may know more about this than I do. Well, I think this movie was tongue-in-cheek for sure. Yeah. 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 I mean, Julia Stiles does seem to be doing a bit of a kind of Joan Crawford mummy dearest. Like, she's, she's not... You know, she's obviously... Julia Stiles is a very accomplished actress. I do think she... I think she was certainly in on the joke. Yeah. Is that what she was up to? Because because I was watching the film going, was she secretly a, not a good actress this entire time? Oh, no, she's great. Don't, don't say that. Um, but the, the mopey well, dad. That, I didn't. Uh, <laughs> I'm not I sure the mopey dad was in on it. <laughs> <laughs> I just love her angular features. She's so cat-like. 
And yeah. uh, I think she was very well cast against Isabel Furman. Th- their scenes together are very entertaining. God, entertaining just seems like damning with such faint praise when it comes to films. <laughs> it's a bit like when you call like a painting decorative. It's like that's not what it's supposed. That's supposed to be like a symptom, not the not the disease. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I mostly found myself entertained. I mean, uh, the filmmaking in this was very entertaining to me. Like I said, they do a lot of camera tricks to make Isabel Furman look as though she's oh, I don't know, you know. 10 year old size, child sized, um, when she's actually five foot three, I looked it up, which is pretty normal size for an adult woman. Um, and that this whole film looked like it was shot through a dryer sheet. The light yes. was so diffused. The, <laughs> the whole thing was just so misty. And at first I thought it would, they were going for a Gothic horror type of thing. But later on I thought, so is this just to try to make her look younger? Is mm. that why it's filtered like that? It was so murky and dully directed, I must say. And that's exactly why, I think, just so that you can't notice how old she actually is. Mm. Oh, God. I didn't pick up on that. I was just so laughing my ass off at every bit that it swapped out and was just a little child was appeared <laughs> from behind. <laughs> I think I just enjoy yeah. when, when women playing psychopaths I find it very entertaining and I think she really got into it so quality wise maybe a bit less than Neil Jordan's Greta with Isabel Huppert playing the psycho oh, in that that was a fun one yeah that was really that fun that was a fun one yeah mm. so a bit lower in quality uh, wise I'd say <laughs> I think that's fair um, should we get some scores on this before we move on? Katie, do you want to go first? Um, in anticipation, enjoyment, and in retrospect. Well, anticipation four stars because you know I had heard how how nutty this movie was uh, before I watched it. Um, uh, enjoyment, I would say three stars because there were parts of it where I was just sitting there going, "Come on, let's go, ramp it up." Go mm. go for eleven, you know we've been at we've been at a seven or an eight for a long time. Let's go to eleven, take it over the top, and it didn't do that as often as I was hoping. It was more just these scattered moments where you kind of you know shriek and jump off the couch for a moment, but it didn't sustain a high level of b- bonkers. And I mean that mm. as a compliment. When you're talking about a film like say Malignant. The, the whole last 10, 15 minutes of that movie is just completely bonkers and wildly entertaining. And this movie never really rose quite to that level for longer than I would say like a minute at a time. And so mm. it was only a three for me in watching and a three as a total for that reason as well. Although I do think Isabel Furman is a talented actor. Yeah. Um, anticipation. Sorry. Anticipation for me. Uh, was a three just simply because of the age of Isabel Furman. Uh, enjoyment, three, I laughed quite a lot. And in retrospect, oh, a two and a half to a three, I think, for me on that. Just because, as Katie said rightly, it did need to be, ramp up the, the madness and the bonkersness of it, yeah, for sure. Um, for me, anticipation, probably a one. I did not understand who was asking for this. 
um, enjoyment three. I mean, you know, it's one of those things where I had to like think of it in terms of like purely enjoyment. Am, am I enjoying myself? I am laughing. I am mm. smiling. I am trying to not go to the bathroom because I want to see what happens next. So yeah, that's certainly enjoyment. And then in retrospect, I was kind of going between a two and a three, but mm. I've started for some reason, my Twitter algorithm is showing me a lot of the behind the scenes photos. And it's all these like Julia Siles on like giant glittering platforms and stuff, which is making me feel really warmly towards it. Uh, so yeah, three in retrospect. Um, I repeat this for little white lies. And I think my final line was, you know, 20 years, let's bring it back. Let's see, let's push this as far as we can. <laughs> Like, I want to see a 45-year-old Isabel Furman pretending to be nine. Why not? <laughs> so, like, so Jamie Lee got... Curtis in Halloween, she just comes back and pretends 15 years yes. <laughs> Yeah, let's... If we're going to build a franchise, let's build a ridiculous franchise. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how many Jurassic Park movies are there? You're telling me that those people still can't figure out how to not be in a room with a velociraptor? And there's no psychopathic orphans in those movies, so this one's automatically better. I think there's more story to tell. Um, So if you've got thoughts on these films, you can email truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or tweet us at LWLies. Next up, Film Club. A serial killer known as Buffalo Bill is, kidna- is kidnapping and murdering young women across the Midwest. Believing it takes one to know one, the FBI sends trainee Clarice Starling to interview Dr. Hannibal Lecter. Lecter, a brilliant murderous cannibal, agrees to help Starling if she feeds his curiosity with details of her own life. So in terms of horror, you know, it's often kind of underserved as a genre. People don't appreciate how great it is, you know. Tony Collette doesn't get an Oscar nomination for Hereditary, but Peter didn't for us. But this one did. This one won two Oscars for both of its leading actors. Kate, do you have any sense of like why this film succeeded in the way where so many horror films didn't? Well, um, I think that the pedigree of, you know, uh, All Involved helped. I think the fact that, you know, you can debate whether this is a thriller or a horror film helped um i think that i think that those things brought it through and i think there's just a very high level of craft being displayed throughout the film that Mm. um in terms of say it's uh academy awards i think that helps bring it there and i think that the, the honestly the performances and the kind of like dynamic between anthony hopkins and jodie foster um, fueled a lot of its commercial success. Yeah, I remember there was a kind of spicy take that people used to have that, like, actually Manhunter was the better portrayal mm. of Cannibal, ah. Hannibal Lecter because that was much more serious. But, like, Anthony Hopkins is going for it. This is mm. pretty camp, and I think that's what makes it wonderful. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, yeah, the whole Manhunter silence. It's, oh, the, the, the kinks are better than the Beatles of <laughs> thriller films <laughs> is what that is. <laughs> Um, for me, it's interesting, you know, this was one of the first uh, horror films that I ever saw, actually. I saw it at a sleepover when I was young, and um, uh, really 
uh, loomed large in my imagination for that reason. And so I, I hadn't seen it for a long time. And then I saw it again. And then more recently, I've come to know this film in a different context as controversial and, you know, problematic and of its time. And, you know, looking back at it through the lens of, you know, the the discussions about true crime in the 2010s and, um, you know, discussions of the character of Buffalo Bill and, and you know, through the lens of trans issues um, kind of mm-hmm. uh, actually um, brought this film down in my imagination a little bit. But then when I watched it again yesterday, I was like, oh, no, this is. The, the I was really taken with the direction, actually, mm. watching it again in the cinematography. Mm-hmm. Like I was saying, I just felt that the level of craft in this film is so high. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where I have to kind of check my own defensiveness because I mm-hmm. do remember, I've read a lot of things all about how, you know, the gender politics, particularly around Buffalo Bill as a trans character, are, you know, pretty odious at times. Mm-hmm. And because I like this film so much, I used, I think I talked myself into it that it's... It's really not that bad, but it's it's not great. <laughs> no, it's it's of its time, though. You know, I think it's important to look at these things in context. Like for me, um, you know, at this point, the character of Clarice Starling is a bit of a cliche. You know, the strong female character, and there are certain things about her that are a certain kind of wish fulfillment for problematic true crime white ladies. I'll just say that. <laughs> who think, you know, oh, well, I'll come in and I'll solve the crime. You know, that sort of like wish fulfillment of wanting to, you know, be knee deep in this world of like serial killers and catching serial killers and crime and stuff that has led to some, it's spun out in the real world in some problematic ways, we'll put it that way. But if you look at the fact that this film came out 32 years ago, that character was groundbreaking at the time. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. And then you read the book and actually what happens to her is one of the most disheartening things ever. So nobody, nobody read the sequel to the <laughs> to okay. Silence of the Lambs. It's what happens to Clarice is very upsetting. Um, Catherine, is this like a film that you've revisited a lot of times? It just feels like everybody has seen Silence of the Lambs at least once. Oh yeah. I've watched it lots of times and coming at it, after speaking about two films that have kind of, I would say, iconic or interesting, fascinating villains. So we've got, we've just talked about I Came By and we've just talked about Orphan, which what you remember is maybe the villain. We'll, we'll see how time tells with I Came By. And I read a really great piece by Amy Talbin in Sight and Sound when she wrote about serial killers in the 90s and the piece is called Wolves, Lambs and Clarice Starling, The Rise of the Serial Killer in 1990s Cinema and it's absolutely fascinating how she ties together Psycho, Science of the Lambs, Twin Beaks and I think I feel maybe we can add uh, I Came By to that list and it's so insightful on the film's use of gothic in imagery and how it does a similar thing to Angela Carter's The Bloody Chamber by te- taking a familiar narrative at that point of the male investigating crime and crime against women. And we have Jodie Foster's character protecting, want in, in, in wanting to protect the woman and to save her. So, yeah, at the time that was very... Very well done. And Jodie Foster's performance is good. And 
I guess Jonathan Demi, as far as the direction goes, came from the Roger Corman School of uh, mm-hmm. Filmmaking, so he was very much nurtured by him. And there's a great quote uh, in Corman's biography uh, that uh, Jonathan Demi goes into. So, And I think it works with what he's done with Silence of the Lambs. So he says, find legitimate motivated excuses for moving the camera but always look for ways to move it use as many interesting angles as you can don't repeat composition in close-ups and make your villain villain as fascinating as your hero and I think he does all of that and Anthony Hopkins uh staring directly into the camera very rarely blinking is is terrifying and Jodie Foster the way her extreme close-up is shot as well yeah, I think their interactions and their back and forth are so intense and beautifully done that you just, you can't help but become involved with in mm-hmm. that film. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, in terms of the direction, uh, another thing that you can tell that he came up on B-movies is, like you were, you know, talking about that dynamism and no wasted shots. Mm. This film this film is so efficient and crisp in the way it's directed. Like, for example... Um, you know, there's the scene where they're in the funeral home and there's a funeral going on and Clarice walks up to the coffin and then, you know, very plainly, without any real, you know, show or fuss, there's no musical cue, he just cuts for, you know, he cuts to her face and then he cuts back to her father in the coffin and then he cuts back to her as a little girl and he Mm -hmm. tells you so much about her psychology and her feeling in that moment and her background with two very plain spoken shots and that kind of direction, I think, uh, it contrasts with the, the real depravity and grotesque nature of the crimes in the film. It almost mm-hmm. enhances it by how efficient and plain spoken the direction is. Yeah, for sure. And just, I mean, all those shots of uh, <laughs> Clarice existing in a man's world I mean the elevator shot's a very mm. famous example of that where she's just overshadowed by this group of men in this tiny space and and throughout the film Demi does that in a lot of shots As, just before that funeral shot she's surrounded and kind of condescended to by her mm-hmm. uh, yeah investigating like the the man in charge yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I I mean, for me, one of the most terrifying things um, that, you know, sort of almost stayed with me um, more than I think than anything else I've, I watched at this time, because I think like most people, I watched this film far too young. I was about nine. But the night vision shot is the one that really feels so ingenious in retrospect. And I don't know that anybody since has kind of employed it quite as scarily, the way that he edits that. And he really takes his time. There's such patience in that moment. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I think it's that's one of the things I really noticed this time around. Because in one of the training sessions, she's told that she's dead because she hasn't looked over her shoulder at one point. And it's, it, it calls back to that in the night vision shot. And it's so like mm-hmm. creepily done because you can't see what the danger is. The danger's lurking there all the time. And I think... Yeah, that scene is exceptionally well done and very, yeah. very terrifying. Yeah. 
Well, to add to that, yeah, I, that's another little character detail I noticed that I was really taken with when I watched the film again. Is yeah, like you were saying, in the there's a training sequence early on. And it does show up at the end when she breaks into the house. From the moment she breaks mm. into the house, she's following protocol. She's got her back to the wall. She jumps out into the room and clears the room. She shuts the doors. She's doing everything, you know, the way that she has been trained to do it. And I think it says a lot about the character. Mm. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. I, 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 would put, I would put Silas the Lambs in the same category as... Um, you know, like a Jaws Exorcist Godfather, where it really built on not particularly great source material. I don't think the books are really a patch on the film, um, if you ask me. But I was a big fan of the TV show um, that Brian Fuller did. Did you guys watch that show? I oh, loved yes. that show. Yeah. Mads Mikkelsen's incredible in that. And they took kind of an opposite approach. They took a very, mm. like, romantic... Um, yeah. Grand uh, Guignol, is that how you say it? My French is not great. <laughs> yeah. Approach to the material, which I think is pretty is different from the way Silence of the Lambs filmed it. Yeah, I would find myself getting to the end of episodes of Hannibal and um, having to read the synopsises back on like the AV Club or Vulture or whatever it was because I had no sense of what had happened because I was just so enjoying like this feast for the eyes. I was just like, so somebody got killed by someone who's into bees? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) The mushroom scene, is that the first episode? That was really memorable. And him just jumping over the counter going for... uh... Going for mur- oh, yeah. going to murder with the knife. That that seems incredible too. But yeah, I love the way the two characters play off each other and the homoeroticism of that whole show. I love it. I can't get enough. <laughs> yeah. It's gorgeous. I mean, there's, there's a final moment. Oops, sorry. Um, so there's just a final moment where the of the of the final moment of the series and you know did they if they were going to get another season we were going to get Clarice introduced but it does end before that and there's such an intense romance to the final few frames of it and that they don't kiss kills me to this day (laughs) (laughs) so true that's what we're waiting for I mean, I think even in this film between Hannibal Lecter and Clarice, it's more of the element of sexual danger that Clarice mm. faces mm-hmm. throughout the film. There's a, there's a very, pre, you know, she, she kind of knows that this is why she's got this assignment is because, you know, he'll talk to a, a young, pretty woman and someone says this as much to her in a condescending way, actually. Um, and so there, there's this theme that runs throughout Silence of the Lambs, and I think it's it's pretty sensitively observed, considering it was like a, like a male director, of the way that everyone, that she exists in this constant state of, you know, whether it's Hannibal Lecter leering at her, or the other prisoners, you know, throwing things at her, or men condescending to her, like her, like, it's it's a struggle to assert herself and her humanity uh, in this world where everyone always just views her as like a sexual object. That's that's a theme that runs throughout this film. And the objectification of the women, the Buffalo Bill, is mm-hmm. tearing tearing the skin off uh, and making a suit for, which is deeply that's just that whole idea is deeply upsetting. Uh, um, well, that's yeah. Ed Gein, right? That's a that's another Ed yeah. kind of. Well, that's another connection to Psycho, obviously, and which this film is plays off in certain ways. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, it is funny the kind of people that capture like the public imagination. Ed Gein's had so many good movies. Like, <laughs> <laughs> good average, huh? Yeah, Ted Bundy not not a, not a one landed for me. I was gonna say much better film average than Ted. I hate every Ted Bundy movie that comes out. I don't know why. <laughs> I think it's because we keep insisting that he was sexy. True. <laughs> True. He simply was not. No, I'm sure he was a creepy, creepy presence. God. Well, on that note, we should wrap things up. So if you've got thoughts on these films, email truthandmovies at TCO London or tweet us at LWLies. Next week, egos clash in an official competition. There's Regency Romance in Mr. Malcolm's List. And Film Club is Betty Davis versus Anne Baxter in All About Eve. Thanks very much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth and Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guests this week were Catherine McClellan and Katie Reif. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Jake Cunningham. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.